Jack Spierko here with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is February the 14th, 2019, and this is episode 2381 of the Survival Podcast. Yes, it is Valentine's Day, another Hallmark holiday brought to you by the marketing merchants of the world to guilt guys into going out and buying shit that's way more expensive than it should be so that their woman will believe that she loves them. Or he loves her. <sighs> If that's what you do, great. I have no problem with it, but I gave you my advice on it yesterday. Today I'll be giving you my advice in response to your phone calls. Well, all but one. The last segment actually is not driven by a phone call. It's driven by something that's timely and I want to cover today. On the calls, here's what we got today. A question on running aquaponics on solar pan uh, panels. We have a question on running chickens in a tractor paddock hybrid system. Uh, that's kind of complicated, and what complicates it more is this is a meat chicken and an egg chicken type thing. So I think I have some pretty good ideas, actually, on how you can do that. Uh, how skill development led to meat windfalls and uh, using roadkill, running a continuous flow aquaponic system versus ebb and flow. What you do with black fly compost systems in the winter, what do you do then? Uh, building a raised bed garden on the side of a house with cinder blocks. We're going to talk about that. There's some real gotchas to be careful of with this one. Uh, more on ground-based solar, like putting your solar panels on a ground-based versus a roof-based system. Shade, things like that. We're also going to talk about solar tracking systems. I'm actually not going to say much on this one. This is uh, a solar uh, installer, kind of like our expert Sean Mills. He called him to add some stuff to uh, an expert council call from last week that Sean covered. And then I have a wrap-up segment today. I'm going to talk about how I would build, and I'm not going to do it, okay? Uh, but if, if I was going to build a new thing for creators like myself to monetize their sites, like a Patreon, how I would do it and get around all the problems that I think even the people trying to do it now in the quote-unquote liberty movement are going to run into. Um, my, my sincere advice would be build your own membership site. But I know that can be intimidating for people, and I think it'd be cool if there was a site where people could just set up their sites. And I got an idea for a way to do that. Maybe some industrious programmer type out there might take a swing at it. We'll see. We'll get to all of that and more. Well, right now we're going to dive headlong into it. Just you know, just want to remind you right now, though, as I talked about, you know, membership sites. I do have a membership site with with the podcast, and if you'd like to support the work I do, it's either five bucks a month or fifty dollars a year. And you can go sign up. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com forward, uh, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on the members tab. You can see how to sign up there. And I'm going to do something today that I didn't plan on doing. I said yesterday that if you wanted a discount on the membership to make sure you're on the email list, and I said that was basically the last day to do it. I have a feeling based on some viralness of some of the videos that I put out that we're probably going to have people coming in to the show for the first time today. It'll be the first show they ever hear. And because of that, I'm going to extend it for one more day. When the email goes out, for, might as well just end the week with it, right? When the email, the daily mail goes out on Friday, uh, you, if you get that mail, the, the code will be in there. Because if you're listening to this, it's already too late to get it today. Just go, click on subscribe at the website, again, the survivalpodcast.com, or the short URL is tspc.co. Fill it out. And you'll get uh, a confirmation that you're now on the mail list. 
And remember, you don't have to worry about me spamming you. I send one email a day with whatever's new on the blog or something on my mind. That's it. You can unsubscribe anytime you want to. And no, I'm not going to sell your information. And people ask me that. It pisses me off. I'm like, do you think I'm a stupid business person? Because you're giving away your, your customer base if you do that. And, and that's kind of what we're going to talk about when I get to my segment today on how I would build a new Patreon. And it wouldn't be anything like the existing Patreon, but it would do the same thing for the people that used it. We'll get to that. Right now we're going to start out with a question on aquaponics and specifically running on solar panel, uh, solar power with it. Hey, Jack. This is uh, Grant in Los Angeles, MSB member. I'm calling with a question about uh, solar-powered pumps for uh, an aquaponic system. Background, uh, we were at dinner the other night, and my nine-year-old daughter uh, asked the question, why don't we grow what we buy? And my response to that was, hell yes. Um, so I've got some uh, raised beds in the backyard I need to get revitalized, but I was also looking at putting in a, 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 a one of your you know, stock tank uh, aquaponic systems uh, up on uh, our, our elevated patio back there, but we have no power. Um, out there and no real good way to run it there. And so I was wondering if there's any, you know, good options out there for a solar-powered uh, uh, aquaponics pump, uh, you know, DC low wattage draw. Um, I mean, I am in Los Angeles, so I've got good, uh, uh, good solar aspect, good solar exposure. So, um, anyways, that's kind of what I'm looking for. Um, but again, trying to just. Uh, encourage the daughter as much as I can and uh, and kind of uh, teach some resilience uh, to the to the next generation. So uh, thanks for all you do, and I uh, look forward to hearing from you. Cheers. Bye. I'm going to start out with what is probably the easiest thing that you can do and the most cost-effective thing you can do. Bring some power back there. Um, if it's on your back patio, it's up against the house. And there's power somewhere right there, right? And it may be a couple hundred dollar job with an electrician, but I want you to think beyond doing this for an aquaponics system. It would be incredibly valuable for your home when you resold it for a back patio to have electricity. And you might find that it really isn't that hard to do. So I'm going to just start out with, if I were you, I would at least get an electrical company or three, because I never trust one in this type of thing, to just give you a quote. What would it cost to give me a couple, you know, GFI uh, break, breaker quad boxes out here? And you might find out it's not much money at all. And, and, and take a walk around your house. Where's your power? Where's the closest power? Um, I know this isn't to spec or whatever, but I have no problem with taking some larger PVC pipe and basically using it like conduit and popping an electrical cord through it and plugging it into a wall on the side of the house to keep it out of the way, burying the pipe. In fact, I've done it. And usually what you'll end up having to do is cut one end of the extension cord off, but you can easily buy a, a piece that wires on there, and anybody can do that job, even me. Uh, so that would be another possibility to get power back. Now let's try to do this and think about doing this with, with solar power. Okay, here's your, here's your issues. You do not need the water to run all the time. You do need the water to, let's say, not not run for 10 to 12 hours a night when it's dark out. Okay? So right there we know we can't, if we're going to include fish, okay, we're going to take this two different ways. We're going to talk about doing this with fish, and we're going to talk about doing kind of a fishless aquaponics, which we can do as well. 
Um, but if we're going to do it with fish, and you have your summers and your high temperatures, and, and that thing shuts off for 12 hours at night, you're going to come out to stinking, floating dead fish. That's just a fact, okay? So we know we can't do a direct DC power wire to a solar panel pump. We know we can't do that. So we're going to need a battery. So now, I'm, I'm sure it exists, but I'm not aware of a DC-powered timer for something like this, but I'm sure it exists. What it looks like, how it works, I don't know. So you can look into what's available there. Because if this was AC, then you can get something like a simple mechanical timer. You don't even have to worry about it going off time. Because the ones that I recommend, and I'll put a link, so if you can figure out a way to do it with AC in any type of fashion, we'll talk about some ways maybe you can do that with solar here in a minute. But if you put that timer on it, you just basically, if you wanted it to run for an hour, you push four pins down. Each pin represents 15 minutes. So you'd put down, if you wanted to run 15 minutes an hour, hour every fourth pin, you just push it down. And it doesn't even matter then what time you set it to. It's just gonna, it's just gonna run and run and run. And when it gets to that one pin down, it's going to turn the pump on for 15 minutes. And when it passes, it's going to turn the pump off for 15 minutes. Turn the pump on, turn the pump off. Turn the pump on, turn the pump off. See how simple that is. Okay. So a system built with two to four, you know, marine-grade 12-volt batteries wired up together or maybe a couple GC2 golf cart batteries. Um Running to a solar panel, probably at least a 100-watt panel. All right, but see, now you're up over 100 bucks just on the panel. And that's run down to your batteries. If you can find a DC timer that'll do this, then you're kind of golden at that point because you're going to produce way more power than you need. And basically that pump can kick on for 15 minutes out of every hour. And, and you're going to be okay. And you're probably going to have enough power stored up back there to make that happen. And you could always then get yourself an extra um, battery and that you charge with, you know, keep it in the house as a, as a uh, you know, Stephen Harris kind of single battery bank. And you keep it charged up with like a Schumacher charger. And if you have like a couple bad days or something, you don't have enough power out there. You just have a fully charged battery. You come out there and hot swap and boom, you're, you're back in business. The thing is, if you're going to do it with an AC timer, and AC is the easiest way to do this because there's so many pump options available that are just straight-up AC pumps that plug in and work, then you're going to have the inverter running, creating draw off the battery at all times. So you're going to want to use then the, the least you know, powerful inverter that you need. The good news is, you know, 150-watt inverters, you know, overkill. And it's, I, I, I see, I'm not a Stephen Harris or a Sean Mills. I can't tell you how much that's going to pull off your battery, and I damn sure don't know how much energy your solar panel is going to collect. Okay, uh, you're also going to need a charge controller, and you probably, you know, that that's another thirty, forty bucks. And the the advantage to this is you would learn to build a solar system, and whether you ran a DC pump or whether you ran an AC pump running a DC AC conversion with an inverter you would learn how to build basically a solar uh, solar power system. And you can scale that up anytime you want to. Right? We can add more batteries, we can have more panels to it. So that's the way we can do it. But we can't, with fish, run this thing on a direct DC pump to a solar panel directly. 
because when that sun goes down and that water stops moving, you're going to have dead fish. You also have another problem here. You're running, let's say, an ebb and flow system or something like that. If that system shuts off long enough, in 12 hours it could very well happen, that the beneficial bacteria in that tank begin to die. When it kicks on, it can push a whole flush of dead bacteria into your system and also create fish kills. This happens in aquarium situations, and this is why I know about it, where you know they have a couple days with the power off, and aquarium keepers are worried and freaking out, but most of their fish make it, and that power kicks back on, and they didn't empty their filters while it was down, and all the bacteria inside the filters dies, and then it can cause a massive fish kill. So that, that's something we have to worry about if we're off for too long. So we kind of have to balance that. Now, if we go fishless, a lot of this goes away. And I have another aquaponics question about continuous flow versus ebb and flow, and we'll talk about that when we get to it. The next thing is, though, I would want to know from you what type of aquaponics system you're wanting to build. Do you want to build an ebb and flow system, or do you want to build a wicking bed? Based system so that you're you know, you're running water like a, a continuous flow flow through wicking bed which is my favorite way to grow with aquaponics. If you wanted to do that, we don't need fish at all. We don't even need aquaponics. If you have water, we can plumb back there to a float valve. Then that's what I would do to simplify this because you're already wanting to start gardens up and aquaponics. That's two things at once, and it's kind of like a new thing, so it's, it's easy to get overwhelmed. If you want to do ebb and flow aquaponics, I'm going to go back to where I started. I am going to bet that you could get an AC outlet installed for about 250 bucks. Now, you may have some weird configuration of your wiring or some weird California bullshit that makes that not true. But I'm going to tell you that I don't think you can set up you know, the solar panel, the batteries, uh, the charge controller... For, you know, and the pump doesn't matter because you have a pump anyway, right? But I don't think you can do all that for, you know, without putting out a few hundred dollars anyway. And then all you would have is enough power to get by, but you'd get the skill development. But if you took the same money or even double the money and ran electricity back there, now you've got full-on grid power. And now you can do everything that you would ever want to do back there. And that opens that patio up to be more of an enjoyable situation to play music or whatever. All right, so I would really look at that hard. Uh, sometimes AC grid power is the best option. And, the, and, and in general, it usually is. All right, with that, let's go ahead and take another one. This is on chickens. Hi, Jack. This is James in Tennessee. I have a question for you about raising, laying chickens. As part of a growing farm operation. Details are, I currently am on 1.6 acres, about one acre that is open pasture, and I'm starting a boiler operation this year. I have two John Siskovich-style chicken tractors, 6 foot by 10 foot, that I'm going to be using for meat birds. I'm looking at the possibility of also getting a few laying chickens as well, maybe building another Siskovich tractor, putting a couple of roosting bars in there, and doing some licking that around it, and moving them from paddock to paddock. I was wanting your suggestions on stocking density for that sort of thing, maybe 50-square-foot paddocks and what type of breeds and any other suggestions you might have. Thank you. 
Well, you, you know what I'm going to say. What do I always say with questions like this? It depends, and it depends on a lot of things here. First, I want to talk about the meat chickens. I've had experience, and unless you're going to be doing something like Red Rangers or something like that, if you're going to be doing your standard meat chickens, which is probably the best bang for your buck, and, and it's an incredible quality chicken, and there's no reason not to do you know, these hybrid meat chickens. They, they are the perfect bird for it. Um, if you're going to be doing them, you're going to find that they don't really want to go out anyway. The, like, the tractor is the best solution to pasture them. And so for those birds, you don't even really need Electronet. And I also want you to think about it this way. You're going to have these birds for maybe eight weeks, right, uh, on pasture. So you go through all the grief to get them to you know, go back to their house every night and put them in there and everything. And by the time they're kind of got it all down, they're going to graduation anyway. So I just think, I don't care what anybody says, that you're going to move those tractors every day or twice a day, depending on how big the tractors are and how many birds go in them and what they do to the ground. And so we just don't need Electronet for that. We shouldn't have Electronet for that. If we're doing anything with Electronet for that, it's because we're worried about predators getting into the chicken tractors, and it's just big enough to go around them, and it's just to keep predators back. And Electronet's okay at that, but it's really not as good as, you know, electric fencing. Uh, so I wouldn't even touch Electronet for the meat chickens, unless... You're setting up a system for the laying birds, and you might as well just keep everything together. So you're not going to run meat birds year-round. You are going to have to take care of your laying birds year-round. And by the way, you're going to have to take care of your laying birds for about six months before they give you an egg. First egg is the most expensive egg you will ever get out of a bird. Um, and then that, that actually is a good model. A chicken tractor, chicken house type thing for them to be in at night and to be let out in the morning and maybe you know do it a little bit so it makes egg collecting easier and stuff like that. If you're going to do that, and, and the guy wrote me an email and said, hey, I, I messed up in the call. Uh, I said 50 square feet. I actually meant 20 by 50 square, 20 by 50 feet for each time I moved the electric net. So it's about 100 square feet. Um, I'm sorry, I messed it up, right? A uh, thousand square feet, right? So a thousand square foot is actually a lot of space. For a typical laying chicken, right? So I don't even think your stocking density with laying birds with that much space matters. You know, meat chickens you might be doing for profit. You might be doing a larger number of them, whatever that is. I think your laying birds, you said yourself a few. So, you know, if you have like six, eight, even ten, you're going to have no problem making that square footage work. And the way you're going to do this is the 30% rule. You're going to put those birds in that place, set up your electronet, and you're going to observe their utilization of the land. And when they graze down the pasture by about 30%, you're going to move them. And I'm going to, I'm going to go out on a limb and take a guess here. A thousand square feet, a half dozen chickens, you might be able to leave them there for the better part of a week. You might need to move them in a day. It all depends on the quality you have and, and, and what have you. As far as what type of chicken, what do I always say about livestock, especially chickens? If it's dual purpose, it sucks at both of its purposes. Right? We want to go specialized here. And, and it's hard for me to recommend 
anything that's going to be better from an egg production standpoint for you than a, a red sex link. Black sex link's pretty much the same bird. Red sex links, though, they're everywhere. They look like Rhode Island reds. They get a little fatter. And the beauty of those birds is they just don't fly worth a crap once they come into adulthood. You may have to worry about them getting out a little bit, you know, when they're younger birds and they're a little bit lighter body. But by the time they start laying eggs, they're not going to be flying over electronet, especially if you go ahead and clip their wings. So that's the approach I would take. So I would either run your meat birds just straight up in tractors. Or run them alongside your laying birds. And, you know, maybe you just have to move the electronet a bit more during the time of the year when you're running your meat birds. Thousand square feet. I might consider if I were you. Here's what you're going to have to make a decision. Do I want to move them less frequently or do I want the moves to be easier? You know, 20 by 50 foot of electronet. It's, I don't know if you've ever run electronet before, but it's kind of a pain in the ass. It really is. It, it, you know, so to me, I might bring that down to even 500 square feet, right? And then move it more frequently, but just have my moves be easier. If I was going to do this, I would come up, I would, I would put time and effort into coming up with a way that basically makes it as modular as possible for the move. You know, whether everything rides on top of the, the see, that's the other thing, right? So how are you going to power this thing? I'm imagining a solar, uh, solar electric, uh, uh, fence, uh, charger. So you, know, you want to mount that probably straight up on your chicken tractor. And so the beauty is you change, you train them to use that tractor like a coop. They go there every night. That's their safe space. And you can move it while the electronet's down, put the electronet back up and then let them out. And I think that's a good plan. But I'm going to go back to your meat parts. I just wouldn't. Just in my experience, it just isn't worth the daily extra effort and the daily additional risk of predation to do anything other than just leave them in that tractor. And four or five weeks in, I mean, all they want to do is eat, peck, shit, and sleep. I mean, because that's the kind of bird we're talking about here. Again, the egg layers, I think this is a fantastic idea. You just need to make it as convenient for yourself as possible. And there is no X number of birds per square feet in that equation. Okay, In tractors, you have your own way to work that out. But in that kind of paddock shift model, it's all about learning and accepting feedback on your land. You might determine pretty quickly that you might be able to leave birds in a paddock of 1,000 square feet for a week and a half if you're talking a half dozen birds. But you, you need to observe, and if you start to see where, like, they're, like, maybe they're not a full third of utilization, but they're starting to, you know, really tear up the earth in one or two spots, then maybe we need to move them. Maybe we need to do a half move to get away from that area they're fixated on so that they don't overwork those particular spots. But I've found, you know, a half dozen to a dozen chickens are pretty soft on land. Uh, they, don't, they don't work harder than they have to. So it's also, well, how much are you feeding them? What is your pasture made up of? You know, those are those are the things you have to look at there. Hopefully that's helpful. Let's take another one. Jack, you're a jerk. Thanks to your show, I had the confidence to harvest and process a deer that was struck near my house this last week. I listened to all your shows about skill building, and I started up butchering rabbits for my dog. 
moved in the butchering rabbits from their family, up to chickens, and then to goats. And now I've got 75 pounds of de uh, deer meat for my dog. Thanks a lot, Jack. Love your show. Bye. That progression right there, rabbits and, and moving up, is why I actually think it's going to sound a little bit off topic here at first, um, but probably the best thing a person that wants to get into hunting can do is hunt squirrels. Now, there's some exceptions with some states, but in many states, squirrel seasons are incredibly long. Uh, some states have a spring season. Some states pretty much have an open season. So it's something you can always hunt. It tastes great. I mean, I know some people are put off by the concept. It's a tree rat or whatever. It's Man, if you are put off by squirrel, you ain't ate squirrel by somebody cooking it that knows what they're doing. Uh, don't turn around and eat chicken and tell me you like chicken and tell me you don't like squirrel because squirrel is basically like the best tasting chicken you ever had. No, it doesn't taste just like chicken. This is the best way I can explain it. But butchering a squirrel or butchering a rabbit, and rabbits too if you can find a place on them, um, teaches you everything you need to know about at least getting the animal skinned and, and, and gutted out. And then you can learn the cuts of meat from there, and it's really not very hard. And a lot of it has to do with, you know, make sure the animal's well blood out, make sure the, 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 the meat's cold when you're doing your cutting, and, and you can learn everything you want to learn. Um, so I love the skill development progression there. Now, this guy said he ended up with 75 pounds of venison for his dog. I'm sitting here looking at Charlie going, man, I love you, dude, but uh, 75 pounds of venison, it's all for you. Mm, I don't know about that. Um, I wanted to actually use this segment as an opportunity to talk a little bit about harvesting roadkill. I have some video. I think it's still on my phone. It may not be. I may have deleted it. But I actually uploaded the first of like five videos to YouTube. And somebody posted, you know that's illegal, don't you? And I immediately took the video down. First, you know, just made it private. Researched it, realized, yes, it's illegal to pick a deer up off the damn road in Texas, which I just thought was retarded, and I never knew that. Um, so, unfortunately, you know, I'm just not that stupid that I'm going to put video content up like that um, or put it out there for some hater to send somewhere and cause me some grief. Because that deer's long shit and gone, and early ain't nothing anybody could do about it. But it could attract a visit from the rabbit sheriff with a warden, and nobody wants that. So, uh, or some SWAT team raid of my house or something, I, you know, uh, and I don't need that. It's really a shame, though, because this was a deer that my wife spotted and told me about, and it was you know, like a perfect series of events. She went out to get our granddaughter, or grandson, I think. It was our grandson at the time, yeah, because it was before he started school. That's how long ago this is. And on the way out there was no deer and on the way back there was a deer so this deer had been hit within like 30 minutes and it was a young buck and it was dead it was still warm when I when she told me that she didn't see it on the way out and did see it on the way back I'm like I got I can't leave it go to waste so I went to pick it up and when I got there it looked pristine you couldn't even tell where it was hit it was like a perfect roadkill deer and it had a little bit of pink foam coming out of its nose. Now, you know automatically that that's some damage to the lungs, which is even a better sign because when they get hit in the back end, usually you lose a lot of meat. So maybe that's why this guy's giving the dog the meat. Maybe it's just not really great-looking meat. But almost, I've never seen the back straps not usable. I'm just going to go there. Um, so I bring the deer home, and I skin it, and it's got a black and blue mark 
about the size of a 50-cent piece near the top of the ribs on one side. That's all the mark that there is. And so when I gut the deer, there's three big, huge gouges in that lung, which is what killed it, and a tiny piece of bone that shattered off of those ribs. And when I looked at the whole thing, it was kind of like forensics, right? Like this truck, and I'm almost 100% sure it was a truck based on the height of the animal where the impact was, got this deer with the corner of its bumper, just tapped it basically, and tapped by a truck is bad shit. It shattered the bone, and the bone went into the lung and acted like a bullet in, in, or an arrow, arrowhead in the lungs and caused the deer to bleed out. And I was able to determine right where the deer was hit. This deer, like if you shot this deer and it went that far and fell over, you would have been proud of your shot. It was, it was pretty incredible. And a little look into what forensic science must be like. The sad thing is, when I went to pick the animal up, I was able to go over what I do when I pick an animal up off the road to determine whether or not that animal is worth picking up. You know, what do, what do you look for? And, and it sucks that I really can't put that out there. And I don't know, maybe someday I'll take a trip to a state where this is legal during the time of year when they all get hit and we can go and video this, you know, deer by deer by deer. Now, I want to say this, even if states where it's illegal, a law is only good as its enforcement. And most of these laws are only enforced when somebody complains. I have talked to two game wardens in the state of Texas and said, yeah, that's illegal. And if I saw you doing it, and there was people around, I probably would come over and at least tell you not to do it, okay? And yes, if somebody called me and said you did it, I would have be you know, kind of obligated to go check up on it. That said, the one guy said, I've been a warden for 21 years, and I have never written a citation for that. So that led me to think, you know, it's probably still worth doing in that gray market kind of world, right? So I talked to my brother-in-law, who's a cop, and I said, what do you, I said, you know, this is illegal. He goes, yeah, it's illegal. I said, if, you know, you're, you're a city cop. Do you guys even have like a, like, do you even have a code or a citation where you could write a ticket for this or anything? He's like, no, we, we actually couldn't do anything. I'm like, so how would you feel if you were driving down the road and you saw somebody picking up a deer? He goes, I don't have to deal with it. That's great. I don't give a shit. And I'm like, okay. So I talked to a couple other cops around here and they kind of had the same attitude. Like, that's not our thing. Like, if you're causing a traffic problem or something, that's different. But if there's a deer on the side of the road and you pick it up and throw it in your truck and I see you, I'm not going to do it. And there's, they always said, I can't guarantee nobody will. But if they, at least here in, in Texas, in at least the three jurisdictions I've talked to cops from, we don't have a way to, we'd have to contact a game warden and just don't care. So a year later, I'm driving down the road and I see this deer and it was pretty cold out and I knew this deer would be good. And I had to pass it. I couldn't stop. And it was one of those things where, you know, it's, it's right there, but you have to take like 45 minutes to get back. No, like 45 minutes. Like 10 minutes to get back to it. Because you got to go down an exit, around another thing, back around this thing, back there, wait at a light, wait at another light. And it's kind of misting and icing and stuff. So it's Texas. Everybody's driving one mile an hour, uh, which is probably good because it's about all they're capable of in, in the ice and snow. And uh, I get as I come back, I see a cop standing there looking at the deer. And I pulled over, and he said, hey, what's going on? I said, well, to tell you the truth, I was thinking about picking that deer up. He goes, grab an end, and he helped me put it in my truck. So I must say that in some states it's probably really a problem. Some states it's probably not a problem at all. Some states it's a gray area. But if you can, without ruining your life, pick a good quality animal up off the road, there is no reason not to eat that animal. 
And I have had people email me when I've talked about this and said, well, I, I eat deer meat every day of my life, and every time I tried roadkill, I could tell, and blah, blah, blah. Like, man, then you're eating the wrong deer. I mean, you're eating something that either got hammered, and like the meat's all bloodshot or something, and that happens. That, that second one I picked up, I only got like, I'm going to say 15 pounds of meat off that deer because it was so bad. It was so bad, I didn't even want to give it to my dog. And it had been hit in the back end, and that's what I'm saying. When they get hit in the back end, um, you you can lose almost all of the hams. And that's where the majority of not the best meat, but the majority of the meat is on a deer is the, the, you know, your two back hams. And this one had basically been hammered. The rump was shot, both back hams. There was just nothing there worth taking. It probably wasn't worth picking that one up. But in the situation, I went ahead and did it because it's cop there, and I wanted to see if he'd do it. Um, but don't be afraid to use roadkill meat. Do be aware of your laws and how far you can bend them. And just because I said what I said about Texas, you might live in another part of Texas where police see this differently or whatever. And I'm going to say I think there's probably a big difference in a side street in a small town uh, than maybe I-35 with 5,000 people watching as you try to pick a deer up off the highway. So that's another one of those kind of think about what you're doing things. But it, it, to me, it's a shame that I can't really share these videos without fear of something bad happening because um, it just would be a really educational thing. And, and like I said, maybe maybe someday I'll go somewhere where this is just like, hey, if there's a dead deer, you can pick it up. Um, or at least when you didn't call the warden and they'll come out and give you – because that's how Pennsylvania worked when I was a kid. You called the warden on the phone and said, hey, there's a deer here. And they'd either say, here's a number, just write this down, you talk to my office, and that's your permit for it, or they would come out if they were close by or something like that. They might dispatch them out. And I never had one show up. And uh, and it just went on about your business. What I've heard happens here is sometimes people will call the warden here that where you're not supposed to do it, but they'll tell you if you haven't if it's if it's during the season, they'll just tell you put your tag on and go on about your way. And see, I have an issue there unless you're not going to use the tag anyway, and that is you're making me use one of the tags that I paid for for harvesting an animal through sport, and I'm picking up an animal that's going to be dead anyway. But it's probably still worth it. I mean, you know, I have like, I get you like five deer a year. That's plenty for us. So just wanted to kind of throw that out there. The skill development is worth it. But don't think that somehow because the deer was killed by a truck versus killed by a bullet that you can't eat it. Now, again, it all depends on where, how, how long, et cetera. But, but generally, if the meat's not badly damaged and the animal's still warm, you can be sure that that one is worth picking up. Let's take another one. Uh, hey, Jack. It's Nick up in BC. I have a quick question for you about building a new aquaponics system. Um, I've been watching some of your videos and looking at the uh, bell siphons that you build, and I've been reading Backyard Aquaponics. seems to be a good source. And they said they've been doing trials with just using a continuous standpipe versus the bell siphon, and that the results were very comparable. And it looks like you could build that, and then if it didn't work out, adapt it to the bell siphon later. And I was just wondering what your thoughts were on that. Um, I'm looking at building a moderate-sized aquaponic system at our place this spring, as we're getting the days are getting longer here. So anyway, thanks a lot. Have a good one. Yeah, you can do that. Let's talk about the the issues that Ebb and Flow solves so that we can understand how we can mitigate those issues if we're doing a constant flow system. So constant flow media bed, instead of like, I talk about constant flow wicking beds, but a media bed where we're growing in rock or pebbles or whatever, 
It works. Well, there's a couple different ways that we can do it. And the issue is that if you have a bed that's full, and it's just full up, and your plant has roots down in there, they can never really get enough oxygen, and they never get some space to breathe. And so what ebb and flow does is that water fills all the way up, and it dumps down, and those roots get lots of oxygen when that dump happens. Because if you think about it, so when, as the water goes down, the atmosphere is what displaces the water. It's like a rushing in of the atmosphere, so they're getting all that oxygen and all that you know, gas exchange. When we... If we just put that thing up to the top, is those it'll grow. But as those roots grow down there, we can have rotting off and dampening off and things like that because they're never getting a break from being submerged. Now, if we're growing something like if you want to grow water chestnuts, you know, then running your ebb and flow bed three quarter full on a continuous flow is perfect. They they're an aquatic plant. They they love that. They're okay with that. So I know what you're thinking. Well, I kind of do it like a wicking bed. And I'll set the level fairly low. And so the roots will have both roots that can go all the way down and access the nutrient and the water and up high where it's, it's damp, not wet, and up higher where it's fairly dry. And that'll solve my algae problems and all that. And it will. The problem is when you first put the plants into the bed. And this is really easy to fix. So we take all our young plants, we stick them in our ebb and flow bed. We take our stand-up pipe, we pull out our short one, we put a long one in. We bring the water right up to them. Maybe we bring it up an inch from them, and we take a straight collar, a coupler, and we stick it on top just to make our lives easier. So now it brings the water right up to them. After about a week, we pull that coupler off, the water level drops an inch. After another couple weeks, we pull that pipe out, the water whooshes out of there. We stick a shorter pipe in there until we, we make the roots, chase the water level down, And then we put in a really short pipe, maybe a quarter, 25% of the entire depth of the bed, and the roots are that deep, so everybody's happy. We got roots down in the water. We got roots at the edge of the water. You know, the, the, the media is probably fairly wet up to 50%, because, you know, lava rock, et cetera, is very wicking in nature. At 75%, it's probably still damp, and the last quarter, last 25% of the top is dry, which we kind of like that anyway. Works fine. It works fine until when? As you're doing rotational plantings, you got plants that have roots all the way into the system, and you want to put this new plant in. As long as you're batch planting, no problem doing what I just said right there. There's other ways to solve this problem. One would be we run our water instead of the way we do with a downspout. We run it more like a spray bar. We kind of put water across the entire top of the system, And we put it on like a trickle. So instead of putting in there at a fairly high rate, you kind of have a spray bar. Maybe you have a, a piece of PVC pipe, and it runs across the length of the center of your, of your bed. And we keep our stand-up pipe fairly low. And we kind of run that at like a, instead of a spray, a, even though I say spray bar, more, more of a, a, just a trickle, constant trickle. And so water's trickling down through. So everything's really, really wet. We go back to what we talked about earlier with aquaponics. Put a timer on. That system runs for 15 minutes, and it stops. It's kind of like Dutch buckets with an ebb and flow bed. And then it runs another 15, you know, it stops for 45 minutes, and it runs another 15 minutes, and it stops. 
and then it runs another 15 minutes, and it stops. And it never runs another 15 minutes, and it stops. Okay, 15 on, 45 off. On, off, on, off. Plants will do great. You'll have plenty of moisture, plenty of nutrient, and plenty of time in between cycles. And if you decide, well, you know, early on they need more water, I can run 30 on, 30 off. I can run 45 on, 15 off. See? And, and I can just change that frequency whenever I want, and my plants that are young and don't have long roots are still getting enough water and nutrient. So that's another way we can do this. If we want to run it like an ebb and flow bed, in fact, we want to run it as an ebb and flow bed without a bell siphon, without a bell siphon, I've got a way you can do that too. It's a little more complicated. But it will, see the reason people, you say, why do people just, what do people have against bell siphons? What people have against bell siphons is they fail. You know, they either get stuck at the bottom or they get stuck at the top. And stuck at the bottom is a lot worse than being stuck at the top, especially in summertime. They clog up, they did, you know, they, they, they can be kind of finicky. Now I, I've learned that if you take your time and learn to make bell siphons, after about a season, you can make a bell siphon and it will work for you like gangbusters and you don't have these problems anymore. Especially if you make the ones with the secondary kind of drop shoot that I used on the one that's out in my backyard. Uh, I have videos on that uh, that I built last year uh, that David Sigler come up with and th those just those never fail. I mean, they just never fail. But your people that you're reading about are right. Like when they say you can use a stand-up pipe, and if you have problems with it, you can throw a bell siphon on it. You absolutely can. There's an issue, though. We're back to this whole cycling on and off thing. And what we need to have in most instances, if we're only running 15 minutes out of every hour and we're running fish in a hot climate, we need to have, you know, that's fine that that water's on a cycle on and off. And we probably would be better off doing that with solenoids than with a timer, or we need to run two pumps because we need one pump that's constantly agitating that water. You know, if we do 45 on, 15 off, it's probably fine. And that's the other way you can do it then, right? Because what we want is to keep that water circulating and going for the fish, or the fish are going to die, right? I mean, I, 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 I'm going to tell you right now, you can get a 300-gallon uh, IBC, and as long as it's not baking in the sun, You can throw a pump in there, put a spray bar on it, run that water hard oxygenation, and throw tilapia or bluegills in there, and as long as you don't over, totally overstock it, you can have no filter or whatever. Those fish will live. Because that, that off-gassing of the, the waste, those fish will live. I mean, really, the fish living in my 1,200-gallon pond uh, and my 1,000-gallon pond system, both of those, I mean, they don't really have any real filtration in them. It's just moving water. So as long as you have that moving water, churning water, you're going to be okay. And then your filtration makes everything better after it cycles, by the way, because there's still bacteria living on the walls, anything that's in there, and they're still doing the, the nitrogen, nitrite, nitrite, nitrite uh, conversion cycle. So the other way we can do an ebb and flow system that's completely bulletproof, other than there is a mechanical part in it, is we can put two stand-up pipes, one very, very low and one up high. And the low one, on the bottom of it, put a solenoid. So your water's running into your bed. And you can. This is the beauty of this is now we can run the water really slow into the bed. As long as there's something else churning the water in the fish tank, which is just the extra pressure from the pump anyway, we can run that water pretty slow. And if it slows down some, it doesn't hurt. If it gets a little too fast, it doesn't hurt. Water comes up the stand-up pipe, starts running over. Boom, the, the bed's overflowing and the water level's high. At whatever time or frequency we set, 
that solenoid opens for however long we want it to open. It will drain out just like an ebb and flow bed. And as long as it stays open, the water level will drop down to the bottom. And then whenever the timer tells the solenoid to, the solenoid will close up on that lower stack pipe and it'll fill back up. So those are all the different ways we can make this happen. And I hope it all made sense. Hard to explain without visual aids, but there you go. Uh, but you can definitely just try the low-tech method, and they're absolutely right. If you don't like what happens, throw a bell siphon on it. Let's take another one, this one on black, uh, black soldier flies. Hey, Jack. Roger McDowell in Central Kentucky, MSB member. Listen to all your shows. Uh, I'm considering uh, starting a black soldier fly uh, uh, growth at, for my chickens and my uh, quail. My question is, uh, what do you do with those in the wintertime? I don't want a bunch of flies in the basement, or I don't have any other really heated space to keep those through the winter. What do people normally do to keep their black soldier flies going through the cold uh, cold months? Let me know. Thanks. Well, the answer to this one's really, really simple. You don't do anything. What you do is you stop providing whatever, let's say, the fuel for that system was. So if you were, you know, using because the beautiful thing about black soldier flies is you can compost, you know, chicken guts or anything in there. Uh, really hot manures like quail manures, where I think this conversation started a few weeks ago, etc. But when you get to the point where it is too cold for them, you just stop putting that stuff in that system until it warms back up. And you might be like, well, but I put all this work into developing this black soldier fly colony. That you know, Now they're going to be gone. You can't get rid of them. Uh, if you notice, like, if you want to buy earthworms or red wigglers or something, you can go to a site called Uncle Jim's Worm Farm, probably the best place to get worms there is on the Internet. Uh, but you will not find Uncle Jim's black so soldier fly uh, you know, farm. You, you, I, I, maybe somebody does it, but I've never heard of buying, like, a starter for black soldier flies. They live pretty much everywhere in the United If they don't live where you are, you're not going to be able to introduce them, okay? And, yeah, you wouldn't want them flying around the house or anything like that either. You wouldn't want a stinky, because they, they are kind of stinky compared to other forms of composting. Uh, so you wouldn't want them real closer to the porch or in the house anyway. Um, but they will just show back up. And, and the beautiful thing, if you've, if you've not... Seen black soldier fly, you probably haven't didn't notice what it was. They look a lot like a wasp. They're a, a, an insect that uses mimicry. Uh, basically, mimicry means I look like something you don't want to touch, so you'll leave me alone. They look like a little black wasp, but they don't even eat. They don't eat. They don't do anything as a fly at all except breed and lay eggs. That's all they do. The majority of their life cycle is spent as a larval form or a pupa form. So what happens is the adults that are around in your area and they're there will find a, 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 an environment they want to habitat, you know, to use for breeding. Oh, there's good stuff here. I don't want to eat it, but my kids will. They breed and they lay eggs and they go die. The adult insect, I don't remember exactly how long, but they don't live very long. They don't sting. They don't bite. They really don't even have what you would call a mouth. So even though it looks like a wasp that would sting you, if you picked it up and shook it around your hand, nothing happens. So they start 
a, a new colony and it just keeps building and building and building. So the, 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 the thing you want to do then if you want to use them as a food source is they will hit a peak production about three-quarters of the way through your season. And they'll probably be producing more at that point than you at least need to be feeding your animals. So at that point, you'll start taking a portion of them and freezing them. And this is the larval form. We'll get to that in a second. And then you'll, you'll store up, like you know, ant and grasshopper thing, you'll store up this protein for your, your livestock in the freezer, and then you'll feed it to them through the winter out of the reserves. Or... You just feed them that while it's available. You don't take up freezer space with them, and you just don't feed them that in the winter. It's it's one or the other, but that's it. I've never heard of anybody doing them side. I've never heard of a starter culture of, of soldier fly larvae or something like that. But I'm sure you could do it, but if you did it that way, if you harvest them, they're, they're never going to be there as adults. And, I mean, I've just almost every compost pile I've ever built, sooner or later some of them show up. And if you build the right environment, they're going to show up quick, and they're going to establish quick, and they're going to do wonderful things for you. Uh, I mean, the most innovative thing I've seen is where people set them up with fish tanks, and when that larva crawl, crawls up and out, it just falls in the fish tank and the fish eat it, and they don't literally do anything. All they do is just keep adding material, and when you get to the time, again, when you get to the time of the year where they don't breed anymore and they don't work anymore, you just stop putting material in there. And then you know the time of the year when they come back around. That's it. That's all there is to it. So it may not be the answer you want, but it actually makes the the, the problem really easy to solve. And there really isn't another way I know of that, I, that you can do it. I'm sure it could be done, but I don't think you'd want to, right? Because then you'd have to be letting these adults, a certain number of them, fly around your home or indoors or something. I just don't think you get a good energy return on that. Use the natural system the way nature designed it and use the timing that nature designed. Uh, now we've got another question. This is a gardening one. Kind of everybody's in that zone right now this time of year. Let's go ahead and take that question. Hey, Jack. Jack, it's Jack. i got a design question about building a center block raised bed garden. Uh, how do you do it without putting in a false floor? And here's the details. I scored a ton of free center block, and I've got a place I'm going to put it, it's approximately 23 feet long and about 38 inches deep up against the side of my uh, house. It's south-facing. Uh, there's a cinder block there now for the foundation of the of the, of the uh, house. It rises up about three feet, and then the siding starts up from there. So I like, what I was hoping to do was raise up the cinder block wall high enough that I could work without having to bend down or bend over. My wife is looking for something like that. So I'm thinking, well, crap, i got to fill it with something. Do I fill it with, uh, kind of fill it with wood chips up to the level where I want to put my soil in? Or I don't want to put, you know, something, a fake or a false uh, floor in it, like, you know, wood or whatever. I think that would eventually rot or or disintegrate or too much weight. Anyway, um, how high should I go? I'm looking to maybe go up three blocks high, and if that's the case, what can I backfill the the uh, structure with without filling it totally up with soil? Or is that the best way to go? Just fill it up with soil. Seems like a, a little bit of a waste there. I will shoot you some photos on email so you can get a grip on it. Appreciate your feedback. Thanks. All right, Jake, I, I looked at your pictures, and I think the overall plan is sound. I want to talk to you about at least one or two big gotchas before we go over how to do this. 
Number one, I noticed in one of the pictures that there was a weep hole in that wall that you're talking about with a little piece of pipe sticking out of it. And I know you might be thinking, hey, I know what. I'll just let that weep hole weep into the bed, and then that way it'll it'll help provide free water. If the weep hole was above the bed and it was going to drip into the bed, I'd think that was a fine-ass idea. However, there's a potential for that to get clogged up down there and back up into the siding of your home, which is why it's put there in the first place, let that moisture out. So I would, you know, whatever size it is, put a coupler on it, whatever, and I would actually run it so that it can come out of the bed so that you can see the end of the pipe so that if you ever think you have a problem, you can stick a snake or something up in there and clean it out. But you do not want to cut off weep holes that come out of your home. So I would that's one thing to look at. Number two, you said wood chips. I love me some wood chips. I love me some wood chips as a wood core, which is kind of what you would be doing, kind of a wood chip hula culture sort of kind of hybrid thing, even though I don't call it hula culture, because if it ain't a hill, it ain't a hoogle, it's a wood core. Um, I love me some wood chip mulch. I love, love, love me some wood chips. I think it's one of the greatest things in the world. Just love it. Tuesday, when I talk about preparing garden beds, we're going to talk about multiple types of mulches, but you're going to hear my favorite one is wood chips. And I love me some wood chips that have little twigs and leaves and everything in them, not just some sterile-ass one type of wood wood chips. Native wood chips that you get from a local place where they just take trees and just shred the shit out of everything, I love it. I would not pile wood chips, especially thickly, on the surface or really below the ground. And eventually, when you cover this, I know it's above ground, but it's going to become below ground. It goes right up underneath your house. Do not do that shit up next to your house. Don't. Because you are ringing the termite doorbell. And I have seen termites show up in deeply mulched stuff all the time. And people go, ah! they, they live here anyway. It's not a problem. But I don't want to build a colony of termites next to the foundation of my home because they will eventually find their way into there, and then you're going to end up having to use some pretty toxic chemicals to treat them, and hopefully you'll catch them before they're a huge problem. Okay, So I don't want to do wood chips for this. Um, if you used a thin layer of wood chips as a mulch, I probably wouldn't have a problem with it, but I'd say there's other things that we can use for this for, for mulch if we're going to be right up against the house. All right, so next up. Let's look at what we can do here. The easy answer is do all dirt. It could get a little bit expensive, and we do want to create probably some drainage here because we're going to be watering this all the time and what have you. You get rain and roof wash and stuff. It could it could maybe do a little bit more moisture into your foundation, and I don't know, does your house have a basement or not either? That has a lot to do with whether that's an issue. If we're going to do all dirt, it could get pretty expensive depending on where you're getting it from. What I would do, if you're going to do kind of an improved, you know, compost mix, topsoil mix, whatever, uh, you know, potting soil mix, garden soil mix, is you get, if you're going to do just dirt, get the cheapest plain old topsoil you can get. Like, I can get screen topsoil here for like, I think $12 a yard or $8 a yard, something like that. And, uh, you, you know, you fill it up maybe halfway with that and then the rest with your improved mix and that's fine. And that, that stuff's all going to get better over time. What I think I would do in your situation is I would probably line the bottom of this uh, thing right at the ground level with two pieces 
that are as long as the bed is of perforated drain pipe. And that could either be like the, the roll-up stuff or the straight stuff that's four inch, or you know what I'm talking about, uh, either or, just to allow some drainage. And I would probably cover them in like gravel. And then I would go from there. And I think that you'll have a lot better results long term and a lot less likely to cause problems for your home that way. And it should actually save money. Dirt's actually kind of expensive in a lot of ways. Um, it, and if not, two, one, at least one the length of it and a allow for it to drain out. It looks fairly level, so that's probably not a big issue, but that's, that's probably what I would do. If you really wanted to use less soil, the only thing I see going in there is rock. You can do rock. If you have uh, access to, like, you know, if you live where I do, we've got friggin' rocks laying all around the place. They're ugly as hell, and don't nobody want them anyway. So you could take up a lot of space with that. Tennessee, you guys got rock everywhere. So uh, if you had a bunch of rock laying around, brick, I mean, it doesn't even matter. It could just be any kind of fill if you want to take some of the space up with that. But don't do it with wood. Uh, wood is going to break down. A wood core underground is just, just wonderful to a termite. And, you know, the truth is, if they colonized it, they probably wouldn't go in your house right away. They'd, they'd live in that wood core until it was gone. Then they got to go find something else. they got to move the colony, whatever's left. Some of it might fly away, split off, whatever. But, you know, just think of them like bees, Jake. You keep bees, you know where they'll go. Right up into that house of yours. And I don't want to be the guy that recommends that you do something that creates termites in your home. Now, I know i got some people freaking out right now because they're like, well, Jack, I got like typical suburban landscaping around my house, you know, decorative blocks or whatever. And I got a flower garden or a garden garden and it's just regular. And then I got like weed blocker down and I got wood chips on top of it. Oh, am I going to get termites? Probably not. Like I said, if Jake wants to mulch the top of this thing with wood chips, I'm a lot less concerned about that. I really am. Um, unless you get into super deep mulch, you generally don't get a termite issue with just wood chips on top of the ground. It's more of a, a, a worm type thing. But when we build a core, it's kind of a different scenario. Though I would say you're actually less likely to get that problem with chips than with, you know, typically what we would bury for hooliculture would be like, you know, logs, slash, stuff like that. Uh, I've pulled them apart and found termites in those. Um, I've not actually ever found termites in a wood chip core But I've never dug one up to look for them either, you know. So that's that's something else to consider. Um, for your mulch, I would kind of steer you if you can get a good supply of untreated straw to use a straw mulch for the top of this. I think it'll look better um, and, and, and just completely eliminate that risk. Because unlike the person with like the small, uh, low flower bed that's really big and comes far away from the house, you're concentrating all this into only about two foot of width. And you're taking all of that moist soil, and I just think it, it, it probably incurs a little bit more risk. The, the thing about using it as a mulch, though, just as a, especially since it's going to be a vegetable-type system or whatever, when you go out there and you work it, if you're starting to attract any kind of termites or anything, you'll be able to see it, and then you can remove and switch that. So I would not do wood chips for mulch. I'd just be aware of the potential problem. Good question, dude, and I'm glad that you found those uh, center locks for nothing or next to nothing. And uh, you seem to be pretty good at that. And I tell you guys that Jake's one of these guys that you can learn from with being able to do a lot with a little. 
he finds a lot of shit either free or cheap because he looks for it. And you can, you you know, every time you do that, you know, I recommend products. I recommend products that you buy and stuff like that. And, and you know, when you need something and you buy it, I think that makes sense. But if you can find something secondary and you can buy something that would normally cost you $100 bucks for $75, you just put $25 bucks in your in your pocket that you can do something else for your life with. If you can get it for $50 bucks and it's just as good, then do that. If you can get it for $25, make it $75 you didn't have. So... Just want to throw that out there. Jake's a good scrounge, and I mean that in a good way. And you should be like Jake when it comes to scrounging. Next up, I have a, a kind of a follow-up call on solar energy. There's a lot of really good information here. I'm not going to have a lot to say after it. I'm going to go into my closing segment. But this was spawned by a person who had solar panels on a roof and was thinking about moving them to a ground mount array. And Sean gave a great answer. Sean Mills from the Expert Council uh, last week with this question. But this guy has some really uh, additional, really good information. I think has a lot to do more with, if you're planning on doing solar, some things to consider. Some really good information on solar trackers, uh, which actually move your panels to optimize the relationship to the sun, and some things like that. So I'm going to go ahead and play that call, and uh, I'll come back, and then we'll finish up for the day. Hey, Jack, a couple of comments on the uh, uh, Sean Mills question. Um, I'm a I'm a NABCEP licensed, uh, or excuse me, not licensed, NABCEP certified uh, solar professional as well. And so one of the things that I wanted to say is uh, if you're just getting some shading in the late afternoon, it's probably not really a huge deal. You're out of your primary production window. Second thing was, if you're going with a ground mount, if at all possible, uh, four kilowatts, that's 16 panels, that's, that's no big deal to put on a either active or passive tracker. Myself, I would go with a passive tracker simply because they're less complicated. Uh, your refrigeration technician will have to balance the, uh, the refrigerants and the oils inside the tubing, uh, to, to get that working correctly. But the active trackers are actually powered by AC, so you would have a run for your DC run and then another run back for your AC run, which would control your um, spacing on the word their servos, which would control your servo motor. So uh, a passive tracker can easily hold four kilowatts, and you will gain more production because you're not sitting still. Uh, another thing that was pointed out in a Time Magazine article with new software, uh, some of the new software tracking algorithms, is that south, we have a tendency to say south, 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 south. And in a broad perspective, for year-long production, that is true. But some of the new tracking software indicates that you want to orient your array in a way that coincides with the loads you're trying to power at that particular time of the day. And that would also be a benefit to even a passive tracker. Now, a passive tracker, you, you obviously, you use a little, you lose a little bit of time uh, in production while you wait for the tubes to turn the system back around where it's tracking the sun because it's going to stop where the sun goes. So those are some, some things that I would, uh, that I would, advise anybody who is thinking about designing a system. And the other thing, was the last thing is, when we talk about trees and shading, um, there are times where you are better off to bite 
despite that little bit of shade because the BTU value that that tree saves you outweighs the little bit of electricity that you generate. So let's add one more uh, aspect to this. We need to think in terms of conservation. It costs you $1 to conserve. It costs you $3 to generate. So conservation is always tier one over generation. So tidy up your house a little bit. Uh, you know, that little blinking clock on your coffee maker, that's that phantom load. All those little phantom loads, they can really add up and could potentially equal to that little bit of shade. So my, I would not advise people to start cutting down trees for a PV array unless they absolutely insist on it. And then the last thing I would say is microinverters. Um, man, these are hit and miss with me in my experience. What they say is true. Yes, there is no single point of system failure. You got a bunch of little system points of system failure. Now, the monitoring, panel level monitoring, and if you're a little bit off axis and things like that, it optimizes the microinverters uh, could be a, a viable option. But microinverters in general are complete and total pains in the ass. You get one, one that fails, well, now you're pulling up six panels to get to the one that failed depending on how your system's designed. If it's a top-mount system, um, then not usually as bad. But in some neighborhoods where you have to meet profile requirements and you're looking at something like a sun frame, or, which is an extraordinary expensive system based on other options, but certain places and risky neighborhoods, uh, they commonly have a profile rule. So your system has to sit within a certain profile. And once you get into places where you're dealing with a profile rule, uh, forget about those, those <laughs> microinverters. They're actually more of a pain in the ass than they're worth. Okay, so I figured I'd throw my couple cents in on that, on that question. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm enjoying the show. Have a good night. So the only thing I wanted to add there and why I think that if, you, if you're doing a solar array, if you can do tracking because you're doing it on the ground, and that is one of the advantages of doing it on the ground. It's certainly something easier to do on the ground than on a roof, as far as I know, anyway. Um, the south thing is is a little overrated, and it does change by the season. Right in the middle of, you know, like from late spring all the way through to early fall, the bulk of the you know, long days when we get lots of sunlight here, uh, my sun rises uh, on, well, I guess it's everybody's sun, right? But my sun rises on my property way over, like, to the northeast, and it makes this huge long arc, and it sets, it, it, like, in, in relation to my home, like, to the northwest. It goes way behind the house. So the, the, the front side of the house is the south side, and it ends up way behind the house. So I have a, a porch on the back of the house, that's facing due north. And those of that have been to my workshops and stuff, been here late in the day, sun just blazes onto that porch. So that tells you that you do get that major movement of the sun. It's not all to the south. That's just the general direction. So I think if you're designing in solar and you want to get the maximum out of it, I think one of the biggest things you can do to maximize it is some sort of, of, of tracking technology. So now as we, we get to the end here, I, I have a segment that's not a call. Uh, that I want to do for you, and I'm going to actually record a video of this and put this on YouTube, and it, it strings into a video that I released yesterday. 
So I, I put out a video yesterday on YouTube, and basically, for those who didn't see it, I, I will put a, uh, a link in the notes so that you can uh, see it. But to summarize it so that this segment makes sense, um, it was about Patreon, but not just Patreon. And it was about how Patreon banned some guy named Sargon of Accurate or whatever, I don't know, some guy hooked up with InfoWars and Alex Jones. And you know, on an individual basis, he's not exactly a guy that I'm that concerned about it. I think some people maybe thought that I was. I'm concerned about the business practices and Patreon basically saying that, like, we have no respect for free speech whatsoever. And when I found out that, you know, what the guy said was a pretty nasty thing to say, but it was not even connected to his Patreon account, and they said they didn't care. Uh, I said, like, this is like kind of the last last ditch for me with any sort of situation where people are monetizing their content um, and using a third-party platform to do it. And I recommended that people go out and basically, if you are a podcaster, a blogger, um, a, a video creator, anything like that, that you sh if you want to monetize it, you should basically follow my membership uh, model. You do it your own way, but basically have a website of your own that people join and all the extra stuff, whether it's discounts or free content or live chats, all the information for that is housed on your own website. And, yeah, that will cost you a little bit more money. And um, I also gave some warnings about YouTube and their membership program that they're doing for people now and all, and how I really, really don't recommend that. And I got a lot of people that, that were you know, telling me that, you know, well, Jordan Peterson's working on his own. And I kind of mentioned in the video, the first one, that, The problem is that it's centralized. So there's information out there that as bad as Patreon is, that part of it is like their merchant account providers saying, you know, we're not gonna, we're not going to uh, act as your merchant account provider for all your other business as long as you're dealing with these certain people. And there was a purge of kind of the whole Alex Jones crowd, and that's a problem. But in general, it, it is not going to affect the average online personality. You're talking about somebody that's on, you know, a couple hundred radio stations and has this kind of media empire and, uh, you know, say what you want, but I think like half of the stuff that comes out of his mouth is conspiracy, conspiracy theory nonsense. That said, he has a complete right to say it, but the danger of being on somebody else's platform is you don't have any customers. You don't have any customers. They have the customer. If you do the YouTube membership thing now, YouTube producers now have a thing, five bucks a month, people can become your member, and you get like all this extra stuff you can do for them. And it's all run on the YouTube platform. That seems nice because it's integrated. But that's YouTube's customer that you get money for. You might have created the relationship, but they have it. That's their customer. With Patreon, you don't have any customers. Your patrons are Patreon's customers. They control the billing. They control the customer relationship. And the beauty of going to something like a membership site like I run is that you're my customer if you join my membership program. You, you are directly doing business with me. And then it started a whole shit storm about, but if you use PayPal, then PayPal can shut you down. I'm like, it doesn't work that way. And people I think didn't understand it when I first said that in the comments. Um, what I mean by that is, sure, PayPal can shut you down. But it's, it's actually kind of like really risking lawsuit type stuff when you do that to an individual. It really is. Because you have to come up with a reason for doing that. And so, well, Alex Jones is PayPal. I don't care what happened to Alex. I do. But for, for you, and, and whether that's a risk or not, I don't care. 
But the bigger thing is if you're running your own membership site, then you should be offering multiple forms of payment. And let's say PayPal says, we're not going to do business with you anymore because you're whatever. Well, okay, fine. That's all right. So now I'm just going to take my membership software and pull up all of my active members that pay with PayPal, and then I'm going to send them an email and say, your account is going to expire on. When it does, your auto-renew is going to fail. If you'd like to remain a supporting member of the MSB, then what, I, then what you can do is go here and change your payment method. That's it. And most of you don't care who charges your Visa card or your MasterCard. You only care that it's safe and secure and the money goes where it's supposed to. That's all you care about. You don't give it. When you go buy something, you're not like, oh, this site uses Authorize.net. I don't like Authorize.net. Or this, you know, Jack uses Stripe. I don't like, you don't care. So that's the, that's the simple solution that you set up your own site. But I realize there's like this desire for there to be a service. So I just thought I would take my entrepreneurial mind and say, if, if Jack was going to build this, what would Jack build? If I had unlimited resources, you know, a, pro, a team of programmers sitting in my back, you know, sitting over there behind my uh, desk instead of fish tanks, if those, those four angelfish were coders and I was going to code a solution to this, how would I do it? First of all, I want you to know something about Patreon. Patreon is not that sophisticated of a platform. It is pretty much a hacked-up WordPress site is all that it is, a multi-user WordPress site tied into a payment solution. Because all of the shit that patrons uh, get from their, their providers, the, provider, the, the, the person they're a patron of, they have to do it. Like, you know, Rob Bob from his Aquaponics channel, he does live chats on Zoom or whatever. Well, he has to handle that. It doesn't, it's not like it's integrated. It's just a blog you post shit on. Like, if you want to be in the chat, you know, here's how you get there. And unless you're a patron, you wouldn't see that. That's all that it is. So, the, why did people use Patreon? Because people realized they had people that wanted to support them. Patreon became a thing, and it was easy. You didn't have to know much to be able to use it. You just had to fill out a form, and boom, you had basically this little mini website. And then your people could pay. Again, it's not that hard to do, but it is going to cost a few hundred to a thousand dollars for most people to do it right. And I do think that people like Jordan Peterson or anybody else is going to try to do this, and they're going to try to do it as a Patreon clone for free speech, is going to create a target. And I do think there's going to be kind of like a big legal battle, and I think in the end, the good guys might win. But you're risking your shit while they fight that battle if you decide that's your new way to monetize things. And you're, I'm back to the customer isn't yours. The customer is the customer of the platform. That's why Facebook can screw you by shutting down a page. All those people that you set up, or the group, all those people you set up that love you and follow you and love what you do, they're not your customers. You don't have a direct relationship with them. Facebook does. So they have the power. You're actually beholden to them. Now, you know, PayPal or Stripe or somebody shutting down your merchant account, it's not that it doesn't cause you problems. You have risk. You cannot do business from one business to another business, business to business, business, that affects your cash flow with any company ever absent risk. It's impossible. It cannot be done. All you can do is mitigate the risk. But if I had this team of programmers, if my four angelfish were four angel programmers, and I was going to build a Patreon-like platform that tried to take it and make it cheap and easy and simple, where anybody could build a site, what I would do is create basically a site cloner. 
So, and you could set it with packages. Like the guy would pay, or the gal that's doing it would pay for as much as they wanted, but it would be really cheap and really easy, and that would create your recurrent revenue model. And the beautiful thing in this is the guy that comes and uses your platform and makes $1,000 a month, if he's using $20 a month worth of services, he pays $20 a month. The guy that's using your software and what have you, if he has, if he's making $50,000 a month and he's using $20 worth of services, it's still only costing $20. And you'd have to do some bandwidth things, stuff in scale, but in, in the end, you would be providing a service to this other business person for a fee. Basically, you would be providing managed web hosting in an environment where everybody's website is basically the same, but they host it on their own domain name, which is another 10 bucks a year. And you just have a series of forms that they fill out, and boom, their site shows up. And if you build standard-sized footers and headers and come up with two or three different layouts, then that person can have a graphics designer. I need a graphic for my header this big and my footer that big, and it's completely branded. And they could sign up in a day and turn it on. And then you'd have a back office where it says, and this is how membership software works. Just there wouldn't be an install and configuration. And when there's new versions, your company would do it for you instead of you doing it for yourself. But you would own the domain. You would own the database. They're your customers. And you, if you ever wanted to go to another membership platform, you would just export your members and import them to a new platform. And you would maintain the relationship. This is the key. You set up your merchant accounts with whoever you want. You make the back office. Here's your Stripe information. Here's your PayPal information. Here's your authorized.net. Here's that. Here's the other. Whatever. Every option. Mine, mine has like nine different preloaded options that I can use. Uh, a member pro. And it's something you have to own and host. I'm trying to do it in a hosted environment. And then that person could just fill out a form. Boom. They have a membership website. They pay you for hosting, and again, kind of a managed hosting. You take care of updates and stuff like that. It all runs off a of central programmed core. Uh, but then here, upload header, upload footer, layout number three, color scheme red. Done. And that's there's nothing hard about that. Now, I don't know how to do it, but I know that there's nothing hard about that. A couple of coders that really wanted to make it happen could build that in a week. Now, People say, well, why, Jack, why don't you go out and get some freelance coders to get this done? Because freelance coders suck. I've hired so many of you people, and you suck so bad, and you never finish a project, and you never get your shit done, and I will never do it again. If you think this is a good idea and you think you can do it, go do it, and then I'll support it. Now, here's the beauty. It is decentralized. Yes, there's a single host. That host could use multiple servers, and they should as they grow. Backups and throw things around and... It doesn't really have a thing to attack. Because the thing you can attack at a Patreon or a Peterson's free Patreon or whatever is that central processing of payments. Your payments come from your customers to you. I don't touch that. It's just like any other hosting package in the world. Now, what Patreon says, they want to build a community of creators. No, they don't. They don't give a shit. That's bullshit so that you'll use their platform. They don't give a flying F about a community of creators. They care about controlling their business, their way, the way they want to. And the guy that is doing uh, a, a blog about photography doesn't probably give a flying crap about some guy with a libertarian talk show who doesn't give a flying crap about somebody that's teaching people about fish aquariums. And I could just keep going. 
You don't need a community of creators. You need a monetization model for the individual to have a direct relationship with their customers and their supporters. And then communities can be built wherever the hell you want to. So now you go to YouTube, and we're going to reverse the stream here. Right now what happens, you go to YouTube, and your business model is what? Your business model is ads on the YouTube uh, channel, or YouTube membership, or you're pushing people over to Patreon. All this sucks. Because the only thing you are incentivized to do is get more and more subscribers on YouTube. That's how you make more money. You take this model, whether it's your own site, which I would not wait for somebody to do this for you. I'm just saying the enterprising person that builds it might find a really big market to sell to, because a lot of people will never do it. Okay, But you now have a place to send people to that you own, you control, it's yours. So now, what are you, what are you trying to do on YouTube every time you're on YouTube? Hey, come on over to my site. Hook up with me there. I got extra stuff for you. When you're on Facebook and you're running the fa you're the Facebook group founder, you can push that shit to those people all the time. No, you love Facebook, but I got bonus shit. I got this. I got that. Subscribe to my podcast. Whatever it is, come get on my mail list. And you take these social media outlets, and instead of continuously feeding them, you use them to feed yourself. And that way, let's say one day Facebook shuts down your great Facebook group. And you're pissed. And I'd be pissed too. And it sucks because you've lost an asset. But the most valuable people that were part of that asset, the ones that supported you the most, the ones that cared about you the most, the ones that always wanted to be there for you, guess what? They're now still with you. Now you can say, dear supporters, thank you so much for being part of this. As you know, today Facebook shut down our group because fill in reason. I think this is abhorrent, but I am done dealing with Facebook for this group. I don't think it makes sense for us to go start another group just so they might shut down someday. So I am founding a new group over at blah, 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 blah. To join the group, go here and sign up. And now you just move your people, and then you start pulling from that platform. And if that platform bones you one day, you're like a swarm now, and your swarm gets bigger and bigger every time it moves. Because the one thing that will actually make those people follow you. See, the thing is, right now, if you're on Facebook, you have an active group, 50,000 people in it. Everybody loves the group. You're like, I'm going to start a sign over on MeWe. They're like, you know, dude, I'm already on Facebook. And But if Facebook's stupid enough to take that away from them, now they've lost something. Now that group that they were an active member in is gone. Now they have an incentive. And this is why these companies have been careful with how much banning they do. Every time they ban somebody, they have the ability to push them away. If you create a centralized point of harvest, and I mean that in a good way. I'm not talking about using people. I'm talking about people that actually love what you do and want to support you. You create that centralization for yourself, decentralized from them, then what you have the ability to do is to move those people when you get screwed. And that's the problem so many of these people have. They don't have any place to move people to. They don't have the direct relationship. So that's my solution. You can do it on your own, and I recommend that is what you do now. You don't wait for anybody. But somebody's out there and can code their ass off and knows how to do what I just said, man, I think that would be a great way to go. So, so that kind of wraps things up for the day, folks. Hope you enjoyed today's podcast as well. Remember, you can always support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Today, the uh, item I have for you on T-SPAS is the Maglite LED 3D cell flashlight. 
Um, this is kind of my favorite go-to utility-level light. I have several of these around the house. And by the way, uh, Insidious, who I haven't heard from on the blog much recently, did comment today uh, about this product. And they come in different colors. He said, I bought each one that's supposed to be in a certain place in a different color. So when somebody in the family doesn't put it back, because that never happens, if it's a red one, I know it belongs over here. And that way every one goes in a place. Because the way I keep these, I have like one in each, each windowsill by a doorway in the house. I have one you know, by the side of the bed. That way it's always around. I'm going to tell you what I love about this light. It is not the brightest light in the Maglite lineup, but it is bright enough to blind the shit out of somebody if you need to. It's bright enough to see what you're doing, and it's big enough to crack a skull if it comes to it. 3D cells in a tube over the head works. I'm going to tell you that I had one experience in my life where I got to test this theory, and it worked just fine. It wasn't in a home, in a home situation. It was in a vehicle, and some guy tried to crawl through the window of my vehicle, and he ended up flat on his back from one crack to the head. All right, So it does do that. Um, it's durable. It's proven technology. When these lights first came out, they had a problem with the LEDs overheating. They solved that problem long ago. And this is my favorite go-to utility light. The smaller 2C cell model, that's what I have in my bug-out bags. For that main, right on top, heavy-duty utility light that I know I can count on. They do have a new version. I have a link in the review to it. It's called the ML300 series. I did buy one when they came out. They're about 15 bucks more. A 3D cell light like I'm talking about today is 25 bucks. These are about 40 bucks. the ML300 series. They are brighter. They don't really work that much better. They don't really give you that much more. They just give you a little bit more light. If I was going to use it as a duty officer or something like that, it'd probably be worth the extra light power, etc. But for having a bunch of them around, I'd, I would stick to this. Uh, so you can learn all about it, and you can always support us by doing your online shopping at T-SPAS. No matter what you buy, remember, if it's there, I own it, I use it, I paid my money for it, I wouldn't recommend that you go ahead and get one yourself. Uh, that's just kind of the rules there. But doesn't matter what you buy, as long as you start there, you can help support us. That brings us to uh, our song of the day today. Our song of the day today is by Gary Moore. Uh, I know Gary Moore mostly as uh, a member of Thin Lizzy. Um, but he did quite a bit of solo work, and I, I know some of his solo music. I had actually never heard of this song. It's called Speak for Yourself, and it came out in uh, 1989, I believe. And what this song is, and I, I wanted to give you some of the lyrics to it if you've never heard it, because sometimes when you play a song somebody's never heard, even if they kind of like the sound, you know, especially at the end of a podcast, they just kind of gloss right over it. But I think this audience will really appreciate this song. It says, Look around across the nation. Another league of morons marching, banners in hand, looking for another scapegoat, try to take away the things they don't understand. Now, you might be like, man, that sounds like today, or especially the last couple of years. Again, the song was released in 1989. Somewhere in the darkness, there's a voice that's crying to be heard. You feel it deep inside you, a voice that just won't be denied. Speak for yourself, someone will hear you, someone will listen. Speak for yourself, who knows, you might change the world. They try to take away your freedom. They try to tell you what you can or what you can't hear. Don't let this moral suffocation make you turn out just like them. It's that what they fear. Is that what they fear? Um, yeah. And you can hear the rest or look the lyrics up for yourself. But I just think this is a very powerful song when you really understand what it's talking about. The point of this song is that people think that power comes from the mob. 
that power comes from public opinion. The power comes from large numbers of people. I've said before that the most, the smallest minority we have is the individual. People talk about protecting the rights of the minority. The individual, every single individual is a unique being. And if you actually really care about minority rights, the best way to protect that is the protection of the rights of the individual. It's very hard for some people to get their heads around, but when they say, but what about this black person over here? Are they not an individual? What about this woman? Are they not an individual? What about this person of this particular religion? Are they not an individual? See, if you focus on protecting the rights of the individual, it becomes irrelevant who they are as a person of color or sexual orientation. It doesn't matter. They are an individual with sovereign rights as an individual. Big part of what this song's about. But the reason people fear that, the reason people fear that, people that claim they want equality, that if you, if you actually respected the right of the individual above the right of any group, then you would have absolute equality. The reason they fear that, <laughs> because the power is the individual. Even when it creates a massive movement, it's always the voice of one that starts it. It's always the voice of one that lights the flame. That no matter how hard you blow on it, no matter how hard you attempt to extinguish it, no matter what you spray it with, the flame won't die. That flame turns into a raging furnace at some point and indeed can change the world. But the voice is always the voice of one in the beginning because the one thinks differently than the mob of morons. The one thinks differently than the crowd. The one thinks for itself. The one realizes its own sovereignty. And instead of being selfish, Selfish with that sovereignty. It thinks of the others. And it says, if I want this, then others should have it too if they choose. And that's what resonates with people. That's what awakens people from the sleep. That's what makes people feel like, this is worthy of my attention. It's not just another pablum puking crap coming off of your TV set or from some group of loons or morons. It's not some attempt to be like others. It's an attempt to truly be free. And that indeed is why the people in power are afraid of it. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. <laughs>